Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast, where we introduce you to a world of small to medium business acquisitions and mergers. We interview business owners, industry leaders, authors, mentors, and other influencers with the sole intent to share with you what it looks like to buy or sell a business. Let's get rolling. And now a moment for our sponsors. I want to highly recommend you get Acquisition Aficionado magazine. Every month, Acquisition Aficionado magazine brings you tactics for business buying and selling you won't find anywhere else. Learn firsthand from industry leaders who share their success stories, featuring in-depth interviews and stories from leading figures in the business acquisition industry. This multi-platform mobile magazine speaks to acquisition entrepreneurs wherever they are in the journey. And I want you to visit acquisitionaficionado.com today. Hello and welcome to the How to Exit podcast. Today I'm here with Oren Klopper. I got it right. <laughs> I, uh, somehow, somehow I just totally drew like I'm here with Oren Klopper, CEO of NetSureit. And we're going to talk about the M&A space and how it uh, applies to like many service providers and IT companies. And I just, I'm really glad to have you here today. I love to have a business owner on the show who's out there in the field doing what we're talking about. Yeah, thanks, Ron. Really, uh, really happy to be talking to you too. To kind of give everybody the, let's do a little bit of the background story. Kind of tell us a little bit about, like, kind of net sure it, how you, how you started it, why you started it, so we can kind of tie that to the rest of the story as we get into the, as your journey. Yeah, sure. Uh, so, at university, I uh, connected with some, uh, some friends. Uh, one of them was an engineer, and he was uh, already selling engineering calculators and computers to, engineers and to friends and family. And uh, I took information systems as an extra major in my second year and he invited me to come sell for them. And uh, yeah, I haven't looked back since then. And then that was, that was 96, sorry, 95. And that's where my journey started. And then in 96, uh, I pretty much said, I want to do this full time. And then up in the lead up to Y2K, I just saw so many uh, entrepreneurial SMB businesses being exploited, Ron. They were just being taken total advantage of, sold technology and solutions they didn't actually need. And, and, and we realized that there was an opportunity to build a transparent, honest, uh, values-based organization to deliver service to this SMB, SME entrepreneurial space uh, that didn't rip them off and truly partnered with them. And that's how the business, that's how the business started. The name NetSureIt came from, we actually created an insurance product, uh, was the, the, the way we positioned it. And we were selling managed services back in 2000. So let's talk about, so that's been what? You had that company for over 24 years now, 20 something years. Wow. Now I've got a fascinating story to share about the early days of our, our business. We had, uh, we serviced quite a lot of doctors. And uh, there was a group of um, uh, uh, cardiologists that uh, there were two at one hospital and two at another, and they'd kind of joined forces. So they wanted to create a a wide area network between the two hospitals. I think it was 19, this was 1997 or 1998. And Microsoft didn't have all the technology that they have now. And and so we used a Linux solution, which was called OCS by by a famous uh, sort of Linux uh, provider. And um, so anyway, we set it up. Everything was working fine. And at that time, 
the the technology used to create the the VPN was ISDN. And at that time, the the telco provider had per second billing. So if you connected for a second, it billed you for a minute. Okay. So what this what the, the error in the system was, it would dial, connect, and then drop the line. Dial, connect. So it was doing that about 20 times in a minute. So what happened was everything was working fine. The emails were working fine. They were super happy, and they started getting their connectivity bills. So, wow, man, they ended up, it was massive amounts that they, we ended up getting it squashed and negotiated, but, wow, that was a, a baptism of fires, I guess you could say. Yeah, it's interesting as the overage charges that used to exist, right? I remember, uh, I can't remember if it was GoDaddy or somebody prior to GoDaddy, but I actually had a website. I had a few websites, and one of them got featured in the, the Wall Street Journal. We had one uh, PDF on there. It was kind of a, just a guide, and it got downloaded so many times. I got this like overage. I, I had the minimum plan for my IS, my internet service provider. I got this overage bill for like twenty seven thousand dollars, and had to call them and negotiate. You know, and I'm paying like I'm paying like nineteen ninety five or twenty seven ninety five in a month in the nineties. Right? I mean, I was not paying a lot, and I get this bill, and I had to call and negotiate it off because it was like, okay, that's just not. You know. And the sad part was is that's the only traction I got out of that article. I didn't really grow the business any. It was it was really underwhelming and everything else but that one download man just somebody got a hold of it started like, downloading it and just i don't know if it was even you know kind of malicious because it was just it was massive what they did but yeah so let's jump into you know let's fast forward to now you, you've run this business for over i guess probably closer to 30 something i'm not going to do public math here i'll mess it up but yeah, yeah from the 90s to now that's at least 20 something plus maybe 30 something years at this point i want to date myself because I, I graduated from high school in 90 now you're on this journey of growth and you, we were talking about right before the show about some acquisitions and stuff uh, let's kind yes. of jump into what's your growth strategy now and how is that how's that looking we've kind of ad hoc done ad acquisitions in the past mm -hmm. so going into the end of 2019 just to create a bit of context i'll give a bit of background uh we kick off our strategic planning quite early so it was about october september october we had a hard look at our organic growth and it was in an absolute hole Ron, for various reasons uh, what we were investing in marketing, our differentiation. And uh, so we were really just, our growth had stalled. Then come the end of 2019, early 2020, we, we saw the eye of the storm of, 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 of the pandemic. And we didn't know what impact it was going to have. So we embarked on probably the most aggressive cost cutting we've ever done. And uh, we ended up, taking 50% of that, putting it back into cash flow and profits just to protect the viability of the business because we didn't know exactly where it was going to end up. And then the other we were able to put into a, into a growth and innovation fund where we were able to invest. So uh, we'd had a, a relationship with a buy-side advisory firm which had been finding us deals. We'd kind of turned that off. We kicked that off again, and we also invested heavily in our in our organic growth. So over over the last three years, uh, we've uh, increased that spend by five times, and uh, we ended up, through our investment and focusing on that space, doing three deals last year, uh, one in New Jersey uh, one, and, and two in New York. And uh, we have two deals that uh, we're working on this year. Uh, hopefully, we can still close them this year. And we've actually decided 
look, I think from an economic thesis perspective, we have to be organically growing. It's just there is a law of diminishing returns, so we're trying to balance that. Uh, and on the other hand, we've leaned heavily into acquisitive growth because we believe that can create the exponential growth we want to achieve. In this in this uh, acquisition growth, do you, did you guys define a really tight target as like, okay, here's the kind of companies we're looking for, or does that target shift? So tell me about the like, tell me about how you the process of defining what you're looking for in an acquisition. Yes, uh, for sure. Uh, we we ended up saying we we want to focus on uh, MSPs that have anywhere between let's call it three to eight million dollars of revenue. We want MSPs that are growing. Uh, we want uh, predominantly a Microsoft technology stack in that base because that's where our skills sit. So we have. 14 uh, gold competencies, and I think five advanced specializations, although Microsoft's changing all of the competencies, which they do from time to time. And uh, so that was critical. We wanted uh, leaders, Ron, that wanted to stay in the business. And uh, that for us was critically important. It's okay, maybe if there are three key leaders and one wants to leave or two, but we want at least some of the key leaders to remain. And we also wanted to find where there was a congruence or a fit from a culture perspective. Uh, those were some of the key. We, we want annuity, 60% or more annuity, because that's obviously a big part of our business, and that's how we think and operate. Uh, those were the key. And, I mean, initially our mandate was East Coast. Uh, we were looking sort of, you know, East Coast U.S., but we've, we've definitely moved across. Uh, we're, we're in discussions with an opportunity on the West Coast right now. That was essentially the, 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 the dynamic that we're looking for. And then we ended up doing one acquisition last year where it was not a, a standard MSP. And they had a particularly deep skill set in a Microsoft Power Platform, which is a, a set of technologies that enables you to automate uh, business processes without writing much code or any code at all. Uh, so those, that's kind of been our focus area. Awesome. It sounds interesting. So I was about to ask you that. Sound like you already did. I was like, was it? Did you actually look at geographic uh, interest? Like, you know, if I were in your shoes as a managed service provider, I'd say we're the biggest tech hubs because the smaller techs are trying to grow. So Austin. You know, the East Coast and the Silicon Valley would be like, you know, the three things I think off of the top of my head. But where are emerging tech hubs to where people are setting up companies and stuff like that? And they're really uh, up and running. So, but maybe I'm missing. I, I don't I'm saying that and suggesting that without knowing what your actual target market is. So what is NetSureit's primary customer? Like who who's your typical bread and butter? Oh, customer? Yeah, sure. It's uh, 50 to to a thousand user environments so typically that's that's where we have real muscle we either are their it department or we augment their it department and uh, that's where we've lived for the longest time uh, we've built up a lot of experience in financial services manufacturing non-profit interestingly we have a lot of non-profit clients in new york a few other other areas where we've, where we've built real competence. Those are sort of that kind of defines a key, and it's it's also a customer that 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 understands the impact that technology can have uh, on their growth and their ability to operate and succeed. Uh, 
so that's that's really kind of what we see as an ideal customer. Now, now you're you're in this growth through acquisition mode. One of the we already talked about kind of the target, the size, and stuff, and the culture. One of the key things that always concerns me is how do you guys handle integration? Because integration, like getting them to work and getting them getting the key employees to stay after you know after I think somebody was telling me that on the show a few weeks ago that uh, the average is like you lose thirty percent of the employees and that seems really high. It's kind of dangerous actually. So yeah, well, uh, let me share share a short story. So we when we when we initially when I initially moved to New York in uh, in twenty sixteen and we did our first acquisition in New York, Ron, I made every we made every mistake you could imagine. We have one person left from that team today. Oh, okay. Oh, oh. We 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 I, I can tell you stories for days on, on, on what transpired there. So we made every mistake we made. Look, we kept a high majority of the clients, learned some tough lessons. I was back doing account management and sales, and uh, so it was uh, it was really a, a very very steep learning curve. So we we licked our wounds and grew from grew from there. But um, yeah, integrations it's. Wow, you could, you could talk about it for a long time. There's a great book called Scaling Up Excellence. It is, it is really, the, the, he, he spoke about this idea of Buddhism and Catholicism and Buddhism being what can you just leave in the core dynamic of that organization? And then uh, whereas other organizations, when they might grow acquisitively or how they grow is very prescriptive, almost like a franchise model. And there are th- some things we don't want to mess with. Because what are we buying? We're buying the magic that that entrepreneur built. And if we go in there and break that, uh, that's when the people start to leave, the customers start to leave, and then all of the value dissipates. So we don't have a perfect answer, but we need to protect that culture, retain as many of the leaders as we possibly can. And, uh, and so what do we, do we integrate from day one? Uh, we centralize finance, we centralize marketing, specifically from a lead generation perspective, because what we found with a lot of the smaller MSPs, they've literally whittled down that marketing budget to hundreds of dollars, maybe a couple of thousand dollars. And we have a, we have a significant investment in marketing. And then, and then we allow those leaders to make decisions based on value on what to integrate. And, and, and it really happens organically. Uh, you know, there's a massive skill shortage in the space. So that in itself drives how can we act as one business across all the regions. Uh, but it's, it's, there's no, we, we've erred away from saying this is our integration formula. It's cost in stone. Um, now, like the one, the, one, uh, the one deal we did in New Jersey, we hardly integrated. These guys just carried on growing. Like when we, did our, when we did our staff satisfaction survey, which is based on the Gallup 12 questions, and we've been doing it for over 15 years, across our regions, New Jersey got the highest results for their staff satisfaction survey out of every single business in the business, every single part of the business. And um, even with, uh, we've got another survey we do, which is called Operating with Excellence, which is around the theme of one together. Are we working as one business? They got the highest result too. We didn't do anything. They just embraced the opportunity. They're an amazing bunch of leaders. Uh, you know, so it's, it's, 
We don't have a clearly defined, this is exactly how we integrate. The only thing I say is marketing, finance, and then we try and be very thoughtful and considered dependent on the nature of that business and uh, take it from there. Definitely. Let's do a story time. What is, let's start with the worst. What's the, out of that, you said that the first one went really bad, but out of all the acquisitions you've done, what's the most, and I don't, I don't, don't share anything that'll hurt your business, but what's the most sure. um, remember, memorable lesson that you won't ever do again? <laughs> Look, you know, I have to think of all the mistakes we made when we first, when we first uh, did that, uh, bought that business in New York. And, you know, on your question of integration, we kind of just went and said, do this, do that, use that system, change this process, change that policy. And, you know, I'm, I have a great relationship with the, the founder of that business. He's still a shareholder in our business. And uh, we were wrong. We were wrong. A lot of things that he argued with me about in the beginning, we were solidly wrong. You know, so, so that was definitely one. And then a few years before that, we, we bought a business in, in Cape Town in South Africa, which was really ad hoc. Yeah, we ended up where, where the founders, some of the founders left and actually went directly after customers. We definitely, we definitely learned from that. It wasn't, it didn't end up being significant, but it was just from a values perspective. It was, it was very frustrating. Uh, and like I'm super old fashioned like that. So no, that was, that was a bit of a nightmare. That would be disruptive mentally too. Cause like you're, you're, you're going through your daily thing and now you got this thing that's really ticking you off over here and, and it's in South Africa and you're in probably, probably New York, <laughs> you're on the East coast yeah. somewhere. So uh, yeah, you mentioned New York, you missed mission South Africa, kind of like give us the lay of where you're at. Like wh- what's the main hubs for uh net sure. Yeah, sure. So we have uh, offices in New Jersey, uh, New York, and that's where the majority of the customer base in the U.S. is. We have some customers on the on the on the West Coast. I think one of the opportunities that uh, COVID definitely presented, customers were, were more open to meeting with you no matter where you were. Um, and then in South Africa, uh, Cape Town, uh, Durban, and and Johannesburg. Let's talk about the the process, like uh, if if because this will help all of our listeners. If you own a business, you decide you're going to do acquisitive growth, you're going to grow through acquisition. Um, the declaration of doing it's the first step, I guess. Like, hey, okay, we're going to do this. How did you guys move from, hey, we're going to, I mean, you probably naturally acquired some stuff before you made that choice. You acquired companies before these last, before the last two or three years, right? Yes. So you've made, you've done it before, but when you made this, okay, this is one of the fastest ways we can grow and we are going to take a serious look at this. Kind of, can you give us the steps that you went through to identify? Or, or even after the first mistake, okay, we just, because a lot of people would have quit, right? I know, I, I've talked to many of people in this process. They're like, oh, our first acquisition was awesome. We grew our company by 50% overnight. And the second one almost bankrupted us. I'll never do another one. Right? I mean, that's normally, normally yeah. there's not yeah. a third or fourth or fifth one, unless you have, unless you bring in people that, to help correct that path or help you see past your own uh, blind side. I wouldn't call it mistakes or errors or, you know, flaws, but just open the door to ideas and concepts and knowledge that you just don't know that you don't know. What happened from the the bad acquisition or the one that went bad afterwards to now to have you keep wanting to do it? Yes, I think we, we, we kind of looked at our organic growth and realized that if you go back five or 10 years, it was much easier to get clients. 
So, you, you know, I listened to the podcast you had with Tim, and uh, Tim spoke to it as well. So it's it's really tough for MSPs to get to that 10%. Uh, uh, and there are exceptions. There's some that are growing very fast. I saw some data out of Enable where it, it kind of painted a bit of a different picture. But what we're experiencing, we look at so many businesses, they're struggling from an organic growth perspective. Yeah, so I suppose we, we what had happened was we had some critical mass we were able to, to to set aside some funds to make it possible. So we invested, you know, so that definitely hit our EBITDA and it hit our profits. We saw the the possibility and the opportunity. So I think if, if any other MSP is considering this, um, you need someone that is going to, in your existing team, focus on it. So probably sourcing those opportunities and, and leveraging maybe existing relationships you have with other MSPs, whether it be through peer groups or through, uh, you know, through the, your, both Microsoft, your Microsoft partners, whatever it might be. Um, that's one consideration. I'm not necessarily giving it in order. Then the other consideration is skilling yourself up to understand the full process. And I think there are so many resources available online. There are so many books you can read. Uh, to, 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 to really grow your knowledge and understanding about that. And then the other one is access to capital. You know, the, the one challenge we have in our space is, uh, and definitely something that needs to be thought about is with the entrance of approximately 60 private equity firms into the MSP space, one of the most significant economic forces, uh, globally, Never just mind the MSP space, but it is the most significant economic force to enter the MSP industry. Now, if you are going to embark on the strategy, this uh, PE-backed community that you're, we're competing against and understanding the PE world and how they think about deals, how they structure deals, how they pay for those companies, and then differentiating your, your uh, approach to the market uh, is critically important. Because if you go in there thinking, you know, you're going you're gonna to pay four times for a business, you're going to pay uh, 25% up front and the rest over five years, when a PE is maybe paying six times and they're paying 90% up front, you know, you need to understand those dynamics of, uh, of, of competing and what you're competing against. And, you know, I, I love this discussion. And I also, I mean, I would uh, happily, if anybody ever wanted to reach out, share Share some of our our uh, our battle scars and uh, uh, dead bodies on the on the battlefield uh, as far as the things we've learned. I mean, good legal counsel is critically important, and that's not just your your lawyer friend who's helped you over the last five years or last ten years. This is someone who actually understands deals. Uh, I mean, I look at that first that first deal we did. Unfortunately, one of my best friends who'd moved to to the U.S. She worked initially at, at Sullivan and at Cromwell, and then she worked at Stradling on the West Coast. But, I mean, we ended up spending uh, – the legal fees we spent on that first acquisition were more than our entire legal fees in the, in, in the whole business in the last five years combined. But I could tell you now, it was part of the reason that deal closed. So right. that's critical um, to have legal. Yeah, so this is kind of high-level, some, some of the things I would, I would say. We talked about the uh, kind of the lesson learned side. What's your biggest win? Like, I mean, surely something stands out as like, I really love that we did th this. 
What's the biggest win you've had inside of buying companies or doing acquisition growth? That's a great question. High level across across these acquisitions. When I look at the single greatest constraint, when a business is growing fast, it's access to great leaders and, and, and great talent. And I look now what's happened over the last two years with the quality, quality of leadership and talent that has joined the business. It is just, I'm, I'm inspired. <laughs> I'm learning and growing. When I'm showing up for our Exco meeting, I want to raise my game because these guys have raised, raised the game across the board. So, uh, that, that's got to be in my mind, uh, the, the, the biggest, the biggest win. And you know, the thing that they, that they, that a lot of them have come in with, the majority of them, pretty much all of them is with a growth mindset is almost and you wouldn't think so. If you've run a business for 10, 20 years, it's part of you and how you did things. And, and these, many of them have just said, put ego aside. We're now part of a bigger purpose-driven organization. And where can I add value? Because the truth is, every leader that takes that approach, when the business is acquired, they'll end up with more opportunity than they can say yes to. But that raises the question is, how are you sourcing your deals? And here, I'm going to preface the question. The reason I'm asking is because I, I would think if you were going through investment bankers, brokers, and advisors to do exit planning, the growth mindset, is they're worn out most of the time. They're, leave, they're wanting to leave for a reason. They've got an exit plan. So how are you sourcing the deals? And if you're sourcing it through those sources, how are you converting them from wanting to exit and have their big ticket and you know their yacht money to having a growth mindset? So I, I have a sneaking suspicion your your uh, your acquisition targets don't necessarily come from that that pool. So yeah, so we we've probably, if I were to say, over the last let's say the last five years, looked at probably fifty companies, and we've done if you include twenty, we've done four deals. We're, so how are we sourcing it? We're we have a buy side advisory firm that looks for opportunities for us. Uh, we have a retainer with them. And they've been amazing. They really, really have. Uh, great guys. And uh, so of the two deal, three deals we did last year, two we did through them. Uh, the other deal came from a referral from one of our marketing partners. Uh, we've, we've looked at multiple deals through other sources. You know, there are three pillars here of consideration. And I just want to kind of frame that for, for the next thing that I'm about to say is, Firstly, you will find with these entrepreneurs, their people are their family, and they want to make sure their people are going to be looked after. Number two, their clients are the next concentric circle of their family. They feel deeply connected and loyal to them. And then finally, they want to ensure that they, that they see a, a good value for what they've spent building. Now, when you balance those three in my mind, I, I, I find it very difficult to understand how you can balance those three and leave immediately. I just don't understand that because there's a transition period. You know, even if you look at, uh, at, at the Gallup uh, research and whether Marxist Buckingham's book, uh, First Break All the Rules, and the continued employee engagement research they did, where now they've interviewed over, they've researched over 2 million staff, over 100,000 companies, and it comes down to people work at companies because of the relationship with the manager. Now, if the key manager leaves on close, there's some maths that just doesn't work there. 
So for me, when I look, when we do, are dealing uh, with deals that are coming from brokers and investment banks, what's happened is the economics of that has hopped up the thinking around the, the value piece that some of the, the true legacy stuff, I believe, gets lost around your people and your clients. Uh, the deals that we've done, typically they've not been in a process they're balanced. They're not caught in the hype of the sale of the business and they're still running their business. They're still focused on the business. And it's our process as well is we, we don't really talk much numbers in the beginning. We just, is there a fit? Get to know each other. I share as openly as transparently as I can so that even if we don't do something, they can learn. And they generally do the same in return. So we're both, we're all learning. And if there isn't a fit, we don't do a deal. So, we do talk to investment banks. We do get deals that we, we have discussions with. So I'll give an example. We've got a deal from an investment bank. Uh, the company's in California. Um, man, I love, this guy was an absolute pleasure. Uh, I love talking to him. Great business, great fit. And, and then we got, I think it must have been like six or seven meetings in. And his, his, his valuation expectations were twice revenue which for an MSP is just, it, it's like a total non-starter, uh, you know? So, and typically when, when there is some dynamic that happens, when there's this hype of the sale, is something that happens with those valuation expectations. And look, I'm not saying all, all investment banks are bad. Definitely not. They play an important role. And some investment banks, I think, do a good job of keeping people realistic and informing them as well. I have a an underlying issue with a lot of brokers and investment banks and stuff. And that's the, uh, there's too many of them, to be honest. There's, uh, <laughs> and not all of them are good. It's kind of like, I came from the real estate uh, world and kind of give you an example. The small market of Tulsa, Oklahoma uh, can often have 6,000 agents, like licensed agents, people who have licenses. Uh, and on average, there's, on average, there's less than 2,000 homes currently listed at any given time. Right. So there's three agents for every house listed on the market. I think the brokerage world is a little bit like like that, too, in that there it's a lot of states don't even have licensing. Oklahoma, for instance, doesn't have a licensing um, requirement to be a business broker. A lot of states, I think something like 30 plus states have no licensing requirement. And then a lot of the other states, like here in California, I don't think there's any special qualifications or tests other than there's real estate tied to them a lot of times. So you have to be a real estate broker in order to, uh, uh, and to have your brokerage license under real estate to sell a business. So I think it's on the business owner like you and my, you know, myself to really, if there's a broker advisor involved or you're choosing one yourself, what do they really know? What are their credentials? How many deals have they done? Yeah. It's just because the barrier to entry into that market is so low anybody. I mean, quite honestly, when we first started this, uh, I've only been in this space for about two and a half years now. Uh, I had one of my friends go, hey, I'll just go buy a brokerage. And he went and bought a Murphy's brokerage. And he thought he was going to source deals through that. And I was like, you like, now you want to be a broker? I'll hand you a card and you're a broker. I was like, I just don't think that serves me well. I don't, I don't know how that would. Uh, I don't think it gives me more, any more clout or anything other than, hey, you know, I'm an investor. I'm interested. But it's yeah. the barrier entry is so low. I, I think that, and there's good ones out there. I partnered with a really good sure. one. Yeah, and you probably, you know, you've you've done your vetting. But I just want to preemphasize uh, that with anybody listening to the show. If you're thinking about going out there, and, and and even inside some of these organizations like the big ones, Sun and Transworld and stuff, they're not all equal. Even the even yeah. like one broker to the next, 
they're not all equal. And the yeah. problem you're talking about is sky high evaluations, I think, comes from that that world of especially their brokers and investment banks to get paid retainers and upfront fees. And they're trying to win business and grow, you know, grow theirs. And some of these things are even public or have investors. So they're trying to prove that they're worth keeping their job. So their numbers always constantly have to go up. And it's a scenario where somebody comes to me and go, Hey, the last, you know, the last advisor said I could get 1.2 million and like we can do two, you know? So what do you think, this is a common question I like to ask. What do you think are some of the myths about your profession and your space that you'd like to debunk? Um, as far as like, there's people out there thinking right now, there's people listening to the show or, or he'll this show, hear the show and they're thinking, I've been in IT for the 15, you know, for 15 years, I'm going to go buy a many service provider. I'm going to go buy myself an MSP. What are some of the common myths or, uh, you know, what would you say to a guy like that? Yeah, it, it very quickly can consume you. So the idea that it's that it's a low touch and it's almost like closing a new customer <laughs> is definitely not. Um yeah, and I've, uh, we've learned the hard way, man. Wow, uh, we made we made so many mistakes. I'm glad I'm still here to, to tell the story. But uh, so the one is the amount of time, and I think uh, it just cannot cannot be underestimated. The 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 other one that I, I think MSPs probably grasp better than others, but this idea of just going buying someone's business and getting rid of the key the key people. And the key leaders, so you can cut those costs and just suddenly double the profits. I, I just don't buy that. And, and you hear of them, you know. I just, I don't, I don't buy. It. They need to stay around in some capacity, and maybe it can phase into an advisory capacity. But I just, that's, that's not. That for me is a, is, is a myth. And I think the examples and people can come on the show and tell stories about how it worked for them, but I, I don't, I don't buy that. It's interesting. Um, many service providers is just, you know, in, in the business side of things, if you married what you guys do for the business side of it, they're business advisors, right? You're just advising on technology. So you have the same inherent problems in that. It's like when the lights go off and everybody goes home, 90 something percent of your assets walk out the door every single night and go you know, spend time with their family, right? So to say yes. you're going to go in and it's just the one, one of the very few, like if I was buying a financial advisory firm, a management advisory firm, or an MSP, people are the assets. I mean, you buy any company, people are the assets. But in this case, you know, you can't, I get that. I'm 100% aligned with what you're saying. You can't go in and just say, I'm going to replace the top management because the top management is why those customers are there, right? Yeah. Um, those customers have been, you know, are there because they like who they're working with. They like how they're being treated. And to be honest, it, it, it's a, there's a, I would say 50 to 60% of your business isn't your technology as much as it is your ability, the human interaction you have with those clients, customers, you know, you lose them if you can't keep the technology up, but you get to keep, you get to land them and keep them because they like working with you. They like how you interact with them, how you communicate with them, how you treat the, you know, how you treat them in general. Yeah, that's it. I mean, we were talking to an amazing business in uh, Denver. We did. We did. We weren't able to close the deal, but I just, I had such an amazing discussion with him. He's in his late fifties. His two partners were in the early sixties, and they were going to leave, but he was going to stay around for a period of time. 
And, you know, so I think it was going to be three years. So in three years, you can, you can transition relationships, make sure you blow those customers away, respect the legacy of the exiting shareholders, and also uh, protect the culture. And uh, we didn't do that deal. But I definitely think there is time where these guys can move on, but um, there needs to be a transition, no question about it. That's interesting as uh, you say that. Uh, was this like in the last year and a half, two years? Yes. So I, I was looking at one in Denver, in, in Colorado, same scenario. The CEO was willing to stay around for a while. It's just a couple of other executives were wanting to leave. They were doing five and a half, six million. So they're in your target range, maybe seven million. It's been a while. And uh, I basically didn't go very far with them because, like, you know, two thirds of the team wanted to leave in the first two, two to three years. Like, two of them were leaving soon. Oh, wow. And uh, so I just, like, okay, no. Uh, but I didn't have the infrastructure, right? This would have been my, I was looking for a cornerstone in the space. I was looking for the anchor, right? To build yes. something off of. And as an anchor, I need that leadership, right? Because there's a lot of places, areas I didn't know. So we might've actually, uh, there's a slight chance we talked to the same company. I won't say it because we're on, both under NDA with that, but we're, there's a slight chance that, our, and our worlds are kind of intertwined. We know a lot of the same people. Yes, uh, yes. Right? So uh, maybe, maybe that, uh, I'm, so I'm, I'm sure, uh, one of those people actually, one of the my network actually referred it to me to take a look at it. So, very chance, good chance that you and I actually took a look at the same thing. I I only went to two calls with the, with them. When before, when it, once he told me that you know the management situation, I just like okay, and and it, and we were probably right in the middle of COVID or right towards the middle of it. And finding yes. people was like, I just interviewed 200 marketing agencies and these are guys that know how to market and know how to get their voice out and then, you know, yes. and lead generation and finding the right people were their top two concerns out of 200 plus marketing agencies. Right. Imagine being like, and that you, you figured that they should be able to, if, if a marketing agency has a hard time marketing that they need employees, right. So I was kind of, I stepped back. And at the time, I actually had a friend who uh, owned a staffing company. They've since sold it. But a uh, headhunting firm, uh, mostly in the oil and gas space, but they knew how to hire engineers and stuff. And I even chatted with them. I was like, how, how long would it take you to find me two executive level uh, managed service providers, tech, techies, uh, in, the, you know, in the Denver market or willing to relocate to the Denver market? And uh, she was like, I, you know, this is somebody who's been doing this for years. Uh, they were on the lines of six months, like six months. All right. I mean, so- the, 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 the other, I mean, just thinking about it now that we, I don't want to miss, miss this uh, share because, oh. I mean, we, we both know him. But, uh, I mean, I've, I've read a few things on my understanding of private equity. One, the, I think the one that kind of started to open my eyes to it was Arit Gadesh's book, uh, Lessons for CEOs from Private Equity. And then I read a series of others, but it didn't really land. But when I read Adam's book, mm. uh, Private Equity Playbook, and then uh, the Exit Playbook I read afterwards, suddenly now, so, so if you're an MSP and I think, you know, you're either thinking about, uh, you know, potentially uh, joining a bigger, bigger platform or, 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 or business, or if you're thinking of embarking on, a, on an acquisitive growth strategy, I would read both of those books. Yeah, Adam yeah, he, Kofi is really, he's just, man, that's a gift to our space. And uh, if you guys Google around and see Adam Coffee actually uh, exited a heat and air company that uh, HVAC, I went six or seven, like multiple times to the tune of a couple <laughs> billion with a B at the end of it. 
don't let yeah. that discourage you because he wrote i've read those books and he wrote those a long a while back right before i had him on the show or right during like i think i read part of one i got him on the show because it was just timing issue i couldn't get through it and then i dove through him on audiobook driving uh and um he's got they're in such a way that it, anything in those books applies to any business you have out there don't don't let Agreed. the don't let your research and who he is discourage you from from listening to him because and and, I, and it directly relates to you in, in your book on uh, even like a, a heat and a lot of businesses are managed service providers whether they want to call themselves or not a heat and air company is a managed service <laughs> provider right they're maintaining <laughs> yeah, and repairing right. heat and air companies uh, you know uh, a plumbing company maintaining you know, and, and installing and configuring plumbing solutions it's just a difference of what the technology is right like now Couldn't if you're yeah. Now, if you're a you know a, a Shopify store, that may be something different. Like you're selling products and stuff like that. But so there's still a lot of that stuff will apply. But uh, yeah, Adam's still one of my favorite. I refer people to him all the time. Brilliant, brilliant guy, and like really cool under pressure. Uh, yeah. So that's a great books. Um, yeah. So great, great, great books. What's the long term vision? What do you guys? I mean, you're going to grow. I mean, you're growing. You're on this growth path now. If you and if you if you're talking to Adam, you're on the right track, right? You're going through acquisition. You're you're really Yes. Careful who you pick out. You're going through this process. To what game? Like to what? What's the vision? Where are you headed? So I would love uh, to one one of one of the biggest MSPs uh, in the market and protect our culture as we grow and uh, protect the quality of service. At a point, we will probably take on a private equity partner. But I want to deeply, deeply understand that before we do that. And so it's almost a, a, an MSP, uh, an MSP uh, dominant player in our market for MSPs run by MSP entrepreneurs. That's really, really what I would, I would love to achieve. This may not may not apply to you guys, but I actually see you know things merge and things happen. I honestly think that. And this is me being maybe immature in the market space, right? I don't know this space very well. I've only been in two in two years, so uh, we can we can count this up maybe to my ignorance. But I honestly think at some point I've already seen some of the smaller investors create their own funds and raise funds. I actually see a lot of companies, maybe even like yours, where you've got a company, you're in multiple locations, you're growing to actually create a wing that's a private equity where you own the private equity firm, you're out there doing that, you're raising funds with the private equity, it's doing its thing and it's acquiring yes. things to fit into your model that you're doing. Um, it's just a different set of lawyers and a different set of team members. I mean, like it's- Yeah, I think it's very interesting. I've had those discussions with Adam. <laughs> so that, that is something we're exploring, but it's a very, very interesting dynamic. Yeah, it's like, a what is that? Um, buy versus build mentality, right? Do I buy this service yes. or do I build it myself? Um, I see that a lot of companies, you know, and maybe I'm just predicting here, you know, pulling a rabbit out of my hat. But uh, I, I think in the next five to 10 years, you're going to see a little bit more of that. Companies that uh, they want to grow, they're going to continue to grow. They know there's money, uh, uh, money out there that's untapped. There's a lot of dry powder sitting out there. They'll set up their own funds. The same way, like a lot of these guys are creating. Uh, I just had a guy on here that created a, a SPAC to to raise money to do their next big acquisition. Uh, there's money out there that's willing to commit to it. And if you've got a clear vision and stuff, there are investors that will put money towards what you're doing. Now, the drill trick is there's 
that opens a whole new the world new world i don't know how many investors you've taken on or what your cap table looks like and stuff but uh understanding that can make or break a company too yeah sure no it's it's critically important and i think there's a lot of investment interest in the spaces understanding in the space and it's just making those the right decisions it's definitely a critical mass that's required to 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 pull that off um but it's uh, strategically i i think you're 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 on the money there as far as what is and i think going to happen one of the biggest ways I think Adam made his money and the thing that intrigued me about what he did by selling his company over and over and over again, like he did. So for you guys that don't know the story, he started or started or got brought in as a CEO of a company. Yes. They got acquired by a private equity firm, but they only acquired like 80% and they left 20% on the table. And then he grew that and then they did it again over and over again. So he kept getting, you know, at least, uh, and I would, I didn't get into the numbers. I don't normally pry with people and say, well, how much did you make? But you have to imagine if you got a piece of each one of those, you know, those, those acquisitions, these uh, mergers and acquisitions transactions, you know, he's set, right? Uh, when you acquire the, when, when, what's your strategy when you bring on or acquire a company? Are you leaving something on them? Are you allowing them must to participate definitely. in the future growth? My, my, must, must definitely. That is, uh, that is one of our, you know, so when I spoke earlier around the three pillars and the dynamic of how, I don't know how you can protect your people, clients, and, and good value if you just want to exit and get like 90, 95% cash up front. Uh, our thesis is, imagine now it's a, it's a $10 million valuation, just as an example. And the portion that you're getting paid for is 70%. And then you roll that, uh, that $3 million as an example. Now, our, our relief is in the, in the medium to, 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 to longer term. You're going to get more potentially uh, for that amount that you've rolled than you got for actually the entire valuation up front. And you can protect the relationships with your people. You can protect the relationship with your customers. And you're, you're in a bigger team now where you, have, you can let go of certain things. You know, you following up on data and uh, or receivables and dealing with uh, different HR issues, those are things you can let go of to work, uh, focus on the things you're really, really gifted at. I was talking to a guy who kind of did a, uh, he kind of did a, he bought another, so I'll kind of give you this story. I don't want to give him his name because I didn't get permission to do this. Um, he bought another company because it had a very strong leadership so that he could retire. So he became like the chairman of the board, the advisor. Uh, there's a there's a nickname they're giving out there where they, they call it a, uh, aqua, aqua, aqua tire or, or, uh, or they were ha half retire where they, you acquire somebody else because they run them. They, they run a similar business as you and, and, yes. and he retires off. And, uh, I asked him, well, so what do you do? You know, we were, where we we're chatting. I was trying to get him on the show, but he's not quite ready because they're still in the integration phase and he doesn't want to say anything to disrupt the process. But, um, I was like, what do you do now that's different? And he says, I do the stuff I love, right? The guy loved going to golf with the clients. He loved the, you know, they have a big house out by a lake and, you know, he hosts dinner parties. He likes, you know, that elbow rubbing, you know, social, his, his, his whole life's around. His wife is an event planner. I mean, 
she, you know, that's just, that's what they enjoy doing that the showcasing yeah. the business and stuff. So their business is growing like mad now because the other guys running the day-to-day operations, put systems and processes in, they run it, you know, he, he acquires something that's run off EOS. So it's very systematic. And uh, okay. he, he's not, he's creative and he, he's social. And he just kind of says, okay, I don't even know that stuff, but it's run, working really well. I'm going to stay away from it. And I'm just going to go, you know, he, you know, he took a bunch of guys out that used to be clients and, you know, out to dinner, you know, one by one, not like in a group, but went out and met with them, seeing what they're going, ended up winning a bunch of them back. He just spent time doing the stuff he used to have time yeah. to do that built his company. And, um, that's, that's a hell of an exit, right? Um, yeah. I just, you know, he used to pull 60, 80 hours a week, stressed out of, you know, stressed out of his mind to try to keep this thing afloat. Now he says, you know, I go to dinner parties, lunches, and golf. And I go to board meetings and, and planning sessions, and uh, I still feel like I've got to find something else to do with my time. So, yeah, that's a perfect example, absolutely yeah. perfect example. What would what piece of advice would you consider most important to um, you know business owners out there that are thinking, well, I might want to partner with you or another managed service provider? How can they start preparing themselves to be ready for that conversation with a company like you? Yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's a great question. If you are in a place as an MSP owner where you're so burnt out and you literally see this as a way to just get out and get rid of it, I would I would pause and take the time to just steady the ship and try and get yourself back to a place of balance. Because I think if you enter into an opportunity in that situation, you, I don't know if you're going to make the right decision. Because we've all, you know, been in business where it's just too much going on. You're too stressed. You're feeling burnt out. Uh, so that, that's the one perspective I would, I would give. And then the next, the next one would be think about how you manage the finances of the business. Because in any process, if there is a fit, there will be a request saying, okay, can we see the numbers so we can understand that? Uh, so I think that's something to apply your mind to. We've looked at a couple of opportunities where they didn't use God. They, they literally they had a friend kind of do it. So we, asked, we, we couldn't actually make sense of the numbers. Great guys. It seemed like they had a great business, but we actually couldn't get a basic view of the accounting. So we had, we had to walk away. Uh, I, would, I would think... I would think about depth and succession. Uh, you know, you, you, hypothetically, you want to do a two to three year transition, which is a, which is a lot more palatable for a for an acquirer who in your team could could succeed you. That's definitely something something to think about. Uh, and just housekeeping, get your house in order. Have you got your agreements in place? Uh, are you are you are you on top of uh, how are you measuring service levels with your customers? Uh, you know, just have a look at the business. But if, if you do it under a burn, if you're feeling just totally burnt out and you just want to get this monkey off your back, that's not the right, uh, the right time. And look, if, if you are thinking about it and, and you want to have a discussion, um, yeah, you can reach out to me. Uh, I will, I, and, and at a point that it makes sense, we could, you know, bring in bring in Adam, who's one who's one of our is our one of our advisory board members, and uh, you can get a perspective directly from an MSP, and then you can get a perspective from a guy that's in his 20-year career bought 58 businesses. 
Um, you know, and that would be one way to, you know, we could share our experience. Awesome. How do people reach out to you? Let's just go ahead and do that. We're at 50, 56 minutes into the show already. So how do yeah, people sure. reach out to you? What's sure. the best way to contact you? I'm very responsive. So you can text me uh, on, on my mobile, 917-517-7763. Um, and uh, you can also reach me on uh, LinkedIn uh, under Oren Klopper, O-R-R-I-N-K-L-O-P-P-E-R. Or you can email me, uh, O-R-R-I-N, at netshirt, N-E-T-S-U-R-I-T dot com. And I have those in the show notes for you guys listening out there. Um, we cover a lot of stuff and stuff. Uh, let's do a couple of wrap-up things. What are the big – if you could pick the three takeaways, if, if somebody um, didn't remember anything else from the show, only, only two or three things, what would you want them to walk away from the show with? If you're selling your business or considering selling your business, I'm sure you know and understand that there are these three dynamics, your people, your clients, and the value that you receive for that. I deeply believe you need to stay around for at least two to three years in that, in that business. So that's something I really think is important. Secondly, I would, I would go through a process of understanding uh, what a potential deal looks like, understanding the MSP space, what's happening from an M&A perspective, because I think a lot of that information is publicly available. You listen to some of the stuff on your podcast, uh, which is very informative. Your, your podcast with Tim Mueller, very informative. You even talk to Tim, um, you know, to get to build your own knowledge and, and understanding. And, um, yeah, I think it's, it's also I would grow your knowledge on private equity space. Try and grow and understand that. I would I'd definitely read both of Adam's books, uh, Private Equity Playbook and uh, Exit, Exit Playbook. And he's mentioned Tim a couple of times. What he's referring to is uh, uh, ITX, ITX Marketplace, one of our channel partners. So we are channel partner with ITX and full disclosure. So there'll be links to that in the show notes too. But uh, if you want to read to Tim and I'm going to Mueller, I believe. Did I get his last yes. name right? Okay. Yes, but, perfect. But I, I remember people's faces better than I do names. So, um, yeah, if you want to reach out to me, I can get you in touch with him too. But, uh, yeah, first step is let's reach out to Oren, and, you know, especially if you have something in that target. You know, you said between, what, 5 million and 8 million or somewhere in there. I get, I get the number. Between right. 3 to 8. 3, three to, to 8, eight million. 3 to 8 yeah. million. And that revenue or EBITDA? Revenue. Revenue. So you're doing 3 million to 8 million in revenue, and you're thinking about wanting to partner with somebody, go – you know, expand your reach and you, you, you've got the, uh, you know, you think you might fit his culture and you, you like what he heard today, reach out to him. And then uh, from there, uh, if that doesn't work, certainly uh, check the show notes, reach out to the ITX guys. They've, they've been doing this since the 80s and uh, really know the space. And they primarily work with managed service providers. So uh, real quick, one big ask, uh, if, uh, if the audience or myself could do anything for you, who would you want to be introduced to or what would you want us to help you do? Yeah, I think, I think, you, I think you actually covered it. We'd love to talk to MSPs that are, that are, that are considering this journey. And uh, I think we can share, share a lot of experience. That would, be, that, would be, uh, that would be super valuable. And I always learn from those discussions, so there is a selfish piece to it as well. 
I get it. That's why I do the podcast. I learn from all you guys. So I want to appreciate yeah. ha- having you on the show today, Warren. And I, I thank you for taking the time to be here. The audience is going to love what we did. Hang out for a few minutes after the show and uh, we'll call it in the end. Absolute pleasure. And thanks for your show. I've learned a lot from it. Not only this discussion, but the various podcasts I've listened to. Awesome. All right. Thank you. Hey, it's your host, Ronald Skelton. I want to thank you personally for watching the show today and invite you to call our new hotline, 918-641-4150. That's 918-641-4150. Call us and tell us about our show, ask questions, uh, suggest a guest, or even tell me about a business you have for sale and we'll reach back out to you. Again, that number is 918-641-4150. Call our hotline and leave us some information. Thank you. I want to announce our new channel partners, the ITX Marketplace. Since 1998, ITX has created $5 billion in value by selling more than 225 IT businesses in 20 countries. ITX works exclusively with IT-enabled businesses generating between $5 million and $30 million who are ready to be sold and M&A decision makers who are ready to buy. For over 25 years, ITX has developed industry knowledge that helps determine whether a seller is a good fit for their buyers before making the match. ITX Mergers and Acquisition Marketplace, we have partnered with, has a proprietary database of 50,000 plus global buyers seeking IT service firms, managed service providers, Microsoft service providers, software as a service platforms, and channel partners with Microsoft, Oracle, ServiceNow, and and the Salesforce space. If you have an IT-enabled business you're ready to sell, I want you to visit the itexchangenet.com slash marketplace, how to exit. That link will be in the show notes. Visit them now. The Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind. The Investors and Entrepreneurial Professional Mastermind combines the traditional peer-to-peer mastermind introduced first in Napoleon Hill's famous book, Think and Grow Rich, with accountability partnering where your peers help you ensure that you set goals, take actions, and get results. If you want to scale, blow past roadblocks, and achieve success faster than you might think is possible, I suggest you take a visit over to TIEPM.com. That's T-I-E. PM.com and check out the Investors and Entrepreneurs Professional Mastermind.